Welcome to VR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. In today's episode, we're talking with Hosni Zauwali. He's the CEO of Tech Adaptica. Hosni knew even at a young age that education would be such a huge catalyst to propel him forward and empower him to help others. He has an impressive formal education background. Hosni has a, a BA in engineering and nuclear, in nuclear engineering, actually, from Paris. He has an MBA in international development from Laval in Montreal. And he was a founder of Voila Learning, a company that offered on online French education for most people in Africa. Additionally, he taught, or maybe is still teaching, we'll hear, an online executive program for Stanford University. Such an impressive background. Welcome to, this, to the show, Hosni. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Craig. And, uh, yeah, the, the official term is actually uh, that I facilitate a few courses at, uh, at Stanford. But uh, yeah, let's keep going. How are you doing? How is everybody doing? Yeah, I'm great. I always want to start with an origin story, and it relates personally to you and what go you got interested. How did you get interested in virtual worlds, in VR, and, and immersive learning in the first place? Well, over a decade ago, I heard a quote from um, the secretary of the UN at that time, Kofi Annan, who was saying that Somalia was hell on earth for kids from zero to eight, eight years old. I was like, okay, I had nothing else to do that day and I decided to fly to Somalia. At that time, the Canadian uh, authorities and the French authorities, because I'm a citizen of both countries, um, they they advised me not to. That like, hey, it's a war zone. You cannot go there. If anything happens to you, you're on your own. I was like, I need to go and take a look. Um, once I was there, I tried to set up what we call now the uh, virtual schools in Africa. Very simply, I flooded two schools with iPads, well, it's not iPads, they were like very cheap um, tablets. Um, these tablets were actually acquired at $32 Canadian dollars uh, a piece. And um, we basically tried to connect students with teachers in France, in Canada, etc. And, you know, I mean, it was a crazy bet at that time. It was over a decade ago. Internet wasn't really, really, you know, strong, especially not in Somalia. But we managed to negotiate um, fiber, the, the fiber optic in there because Kenya has really strong internet connections. And this was the beginning of the story. So the story got mediatized a lot. Um, I and bet, yeah. Since then, since then, I decided to keep going in that matter, trying to make education a little bit more accessible to everyone um, with obviously some successes but a lot of failures as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Haiti, Ghana, we did South Africa, we did Nicaragua. Not all of them were as, um, as, as successful. Let's, let's just say this way. Yeah, let's put it this way. Mm. Let's fast forward a little bit. Your company, Tech Adaptica, sorry, it's hard to say sometimes for me, 
its first beginnings amazingly started on the third floor of an elementary school in a fairly rough part of Toronto. Tell us more about this journey and how you ended up where you are now. That's like incredible growth. I mean, if you want to create a service or a product that will democratize to the masses, that will be used by as many people as possible, our theory is that you need to design this product or this service for two populations, students who don't know how to read and adults with physical and mental exceptionalities. And this is not necessarily my opinion. This is science. um, You take a look around the texting. Texting wasn't really created for you and me, Craig. It's been created for people who cannot hear properly, you know, physical or mental exceptionalities. So we invented texting. Now everyone uses texting. Uh, Take a look at the potato peeler. The potato peeler wasn't created for you and me. It was created for people with fine motricity issues. They couldn't really hold a regular knife and peel a potato. Now, everybody uses a potato peeler even, even for, you know, carrots, apples, and etc. So if you want to design a product and a service for the masses, design it for students who don't know how to read or adults with physical and mental exceptionalities. For us, that school in a very rough neighborhood in Toronto was the perfect setting. Right across the street, we had a homeless shelter where we invited five adults every after-school hours to come and test our technology. We made incremental changes. Every recess, we had a deal with this school. Every recess, five students can come up and test our metaverse for education, our virtual campuses, our avatars, our games. Um, And basically, we've been able to, over four years, we've been able to make incremental changes that really proved them themselves to be very, very useful. And at that time, by the way, Craig, at that time, everybody thought that we were building a video game. You know, no, no incubator wanted us. They were like, oh, you're building a video game. We don't do that. We're more interested in fintech and, and you know, food delivery apps, you know. Um, but now, after COVID-19, everybody was like, hey, wow, your video game is going to be very useful. And I'm like, that's not a video game, man, I told you. And it, we had to wait for for, for Mark Zuckerberg to drop the word metaverse on mm. 3 billion accounts so that everybody comes to us and say, oh, that's you, what you're doing, the metaverse for education. Yeah, sure. You know, it took you seven years to, <laughs> to realize that, but thanks. So obviously we started to have a little bit more traction after that. But these four years in that elementary school in that rough neighborhood, dealing with students who don't know how to read, students from Syria, Afghanistan, Jamaica, etc., and adults with physical and mental exceptionalities from that homeless shelter across the street helped us a lot. And by the way, if you want to build a virtual world, a virtual campus, a virtual city, there's nobody better than homeless people to tell you what's good and what's not good in the streets. We learn so much about landscape architecture, about how people interact with each other, how to multiply spontaneous human interactions in the streets. And that applies to the virtual world as well. That, you know, that is, as a, a design teacher myself, that is so interesting. Most people, doesn't matter whether it's tech or buildings, usually it's an add-on for accessibility. And you're, you're flipping the paradigm upside down and you're saying, 
Let's talk to the people with accessibility issues, with marginalized issues. Let's talk to them first. And more people need to hear this story because, you know, as you can see in the world today, I think these people deserve more say. I mean, think about the ramp, you know, for people in wheelchair. These ramps are used by Amazon delivery people, by, you know, the post office, by even people who have like knee, knee problems. They can't walk the stairs. They just rather walk the ramp, you know. So you build something for people with physical and mental exceptionalities, and it ends up being used by everyone. Well said. Not only that, but you have a great quote on your website that says, today's online educational tools like uh, virtual immersive worlds or metaverses, if you will, are not adapted for the 21st century. And you say Tech Adaptica's live virtual campus aims to address this problem. Tell us more about why you said that. What does that mean? What I mean is you need to go back to who we are as humans. And think about we are in Africa 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years ago, how does a human learn? They learn by looking at the stars by themselves and figure it out. Okay, that's one way. The second is they talk to the wise man or the wise woman. That's a one-on-one interaction. That's great. The second is they do things together in the village and they learn from each other. That collaborative learning is completely absent from online learning. Online learning, you can watch a pre-recorded video from a teacher you've never met. That would be the equivalent of watching the stars and learning from it. That's great. Okay, cool. There's also a one-on-one. That would be the Zoom meeting. That's great. That's the old man, you know, talking to the old man or the old or the wise woman. But how about building a house together, building a project together? That cannot be replicated on Zoom. Why? Because Zoom or Skype or Meet or Teams doesn't allow enough room, enough oxygen for spontaneous human interactions. You need to send the link on your calendar invite, and then there's a link on Zoom, and then you have an agenda You click on it, you talk about what's in the agenda, and then bye-bye, you close it, and you go on. That's the best-case scenario. Most of the time, I'm talking to people, 200 of them, and half of them have their camera off. The other half is doing the dishes, or I don't know what they're doing. And I'm not talking with people. I'm talking at people. When you build a virtual world, metaverse type, metaverse for education, you offer the ability for people to multiply all the spontaneous human interactions, especially if your campus is designed properly, if you have some kind of scavenger hunt around problem solving, around team building, around learning. Does it make sense? Yeah, beautiful. And, you know, I might even add to that the idea that we can also provide proper context in a, in a Zoom meeting or a, or a Skype you know, there's no context to the learning there. There's no, uh, there's no 3D assets. You know, we're, we're propped in a space that is foreign to our brains. So, yeah, well Absolutely. said. There are a growing number, thanks to Zuckerberg's uh, statement, of immersive virtual worlds crowding the market. So, you know, to name a few, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is Frame by Verbella. Engage VR, Mozilla Hubs, there's Snowball, which is out of Australia, Facilitate, Enduvo, Rumi, Spatial, Remio, Altspace also has uh, metaverse-like 
uh, 3D immersive worlds. How do you distinguish yourself to get a piece of this massive metaverse pie that everyone is vying for right now? Well, that's a really good question. Um, first of all, I think metaverse is really just a buzzword right now. Mm-hmm, it's almost mm-hmm. like we're talking about the internet. You know, it's listen, uh, the, the metaverse is nothing but the transformation of the internet in 2D static uh, page to a 3D virtual world. Um, now, everybody tries to get in this metaverse, 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 and nobody, no matter what they do, they just claim it's metaverse, and that's that's fine. You know, they do what it takes to basically surf on that big wave. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be a technological challenge. It's going to be a design challenge. If you're able to dig deeper into the emotional aspect of the learners, of the teachers, the professors, the users, you will be able to create a virtual world. If you just approach it as just another tech tool with avatars, voice, camera, whatever, you're simply going to miss the target by a lot. It's going to be great technologically, but are people going to use it? No, not really. I think there's a lot of work to be done to try to understand what's going on in the mind of people who are behind an avatar. There's, there's a lot of study being, being, um, being launched, actually, about that. And we're just scratching the surface of it. So to me, there's no rush. Um, you know, don't blow your shot too too early. Uh, there's a massive, massive economic crisis coming right now. Let's try not to be cash starved. Let's be, um, yeah, let's be focused on changing the world, impacting people's lives as opposed to, hey, I'm going to exit with $50 million in my bank account. That's fine. Hopefully it will happen. It will happen for all of us. That's fine. There, it's a big world out there. And there's no shortage of companies that need to acquire other companies so that they keep their stock or they share at par. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's all about impact. Think about the youngest population in the world. 41% of Africans are under the age of 15. Are we going to let them simply just, you know, fight with each other? Because I can tell you, as an African, we will fight. If you don't give us access to education and entrepreneurship, we are white, we are black. We are Muslims, we are Christians, we are Utus, we are Tutsis, we are North, we are South. We will fight, except if you give them access to education, proper education, in virtual campuses like Stanford, like Harvard, like all these great universities, but they use their skills to rebuild their own country. Now you change the world. Now you can go in peace. At the end of the day, when you're on your deathbed, then I don't want to sound too philosophical here. But at the end of the day, that's the only thing that's going to matter. You know, the pride that you have done something to improve people's lives or the shame the shame that you have you would have chased money instead of changing people's lives. Mm. So long story short, uh, I don't really have an answer about about all my um, counterparts who are trying to surf on the metaverse. We're trying, we're just trying to stay focused on how people use it, how people will use it and run experiments to understand what they do and how they do it. You, you indicated that the pandemic was a great opportunity to pivot how we approach learning 
most teachers and schools and learning institutions realized quite quickly how difficult and frustrating it was to try and teach via Zoom. And so lots of schools were looking for alternatives. And now that many schools are heading back face-to-face, are you seeing a decline in the adoption of immersive worlds from your stats? Or are it, you know, is it just the tip of the iceberg for many schools who are trying to wrap their head around pedagogy and how pedagogy or good teaching and learning might connect with an immersive world? I think everyone deep inside is terrified um, um, of the idea of having another pandemic, especially mm-hmm. the teachers. It was hell for them. It was hell. The administrators from schools, it's fine, it's okay. They haven't gone into the classroom for the past decade. They're like, okay, whatever, we keep going. But everybody otherwise is terrified. The parents are terrified, the kids are terrified, and especially the teachers are terrified. Is there a will to basically approach these changes, these systemic changes? Not at all, not in our countries. And by our countries, I mean USA, Canada, Europe, no. Not really. Think about it. We have an educational system. We have a school every five kilometers. Why would we want to go online with virtual campuses? You know, let's go back to face-to-face. Nothing beats the handshake after all. I understand that. That's fine. That's totally natural. But for 40% of the world's population, that might be the difference between no education and amazing education, the metaverse for education. That's the only difference. As much as, take a look at Africa, the youngest population in the world. Take a look at how they completely leapfrogged all the banking system. The banking system that was copied, based from Europe slash USA and Canada. They completely leapfrogged it and Basically, now they have their own online banking that is more developed than anywhere else in the world. Literally, anywhere else in the world, the best fintech companies are in Africa. Take a look at M-Pesa, etc. I see that happening with so many technologies. For instance, go to a kid in Africa and show him a landline, you know, a telephone landline. He's going to be like, where is the wire going? He'd never seen that in his life and he will probably never see it. They skip that technology to go straight, not even to the cell phone, but to the smartphone. Education, same thing. They will jump into virtual campuses because it's way cheaper, way better, slows down the brain drain. So we will see part of the world that will be very conservative, which is our world, and another part of the world that will be ready to take risks and moving forward, moving the, you know, moving the dial, basically. We will see a lot of things happening in Africa. And that's why I work a lot there. That's why I'm flying there next week, as a matter of fact, to South Africa. Amazing. And again, often the world does forget about the poor, the marginalized. And so, you know, thankfully, there are people like you out there who aren't forgetting about them. And, you know, I read your origin story. And, you know, you came from humble roots in the first place, which is probably why you have this strong desire and innate desire to help uh, you know, the less fortunate or the people that, that are sort of being left out of, you know, the advancement of the world. Yeah, I mean, and to be honest, I, I hate that saying, but it's true. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I mean, my last name, Zawali, means the poor. Literally, we were the poorest family 
in one of the poorest city, in one of the poorest country in North Africa. <laughs> so, you know, it was so, so messed up, so dysfunctional inside the home, outside the home. It was extremely violent. And when you live in that kind of environment, you realize very quickly that if you start with nothing, you have nothing to lose at the end. Mm. That's why now to me, I just forget about the acquisition, forget, forget about IPO, forget about VC investment, focus on what will be your mark, how you will scratch time, how you will leave your mark and make people's life a little bit better. That's the only thing that matters at the end of the day. Mm. You alluded a lot to iteration. You know, if we think of your origin story again, you garnered feedback from uh, homeless people to help change, develop, and iterate. So I'm curious, what is one thing when you first started in designing, you know, immersive 3D worlds that are going to be great for educating people? What was one thing you thought you knew? And then all of a sudden, now that you've sort of spent some time you know, in this genre or in this area that you've changed your mind about? It's a very good question. So I think, you know, everybody will fall into this trap. We always thought that as long as your avatar is controlled by a human and not artificial intelligence, you have control on your avatar. The human always have control on the avatar. Okay. Now, there's an experiment that's been run uh, we gave an avatar, an identical avatar to 200 students. 200 students, identical avatar. And one by one or two by two in pairs, of, in pairs of two, we made them negotiate on a very simple negotiation. Except for half of them, randomly, we gave them a slightly taller avatar. Mm-hmm. Systematically, the students with the taller avatar negotiated more aggressively than the students with the shorter avatar. Exact same avatar, except one of them is taller and the other one is shorter. Now, we understand how the appearance of the avatar also has an impact on your behavior as a human. Hmm. This is a breakthrough. We always thought that your avatar was just a reflection of your human behavior. But in fact, the appearance of your avatar also have an, have an impact on how the human is going to behave in a virtual world. That opened the doors to a lot of, lot of, lot of thinking around digital identity. Mm-hmm. What kind that of is, virtual, yeah. What kind of virtual is, suit are you going to wear? What kind of virtual watch are you going to wear? What kind of height? All that, soon enough, people will pay to have specific type of suit, specific type of shoes, specific type of hair, etc., etc. And the implications of that for learning, like, you know, how some schools have uniforms, it's almost like, you know, if we take that research with a grain of salt, to what extent then do we allow a student in a learning environment to have a different avatar than their original identity? Maybe we do, maybe, you know, depending on how they're feeling that day, they they should have agency over that. I'm not sure, but I, I find, you know, that particularly interesting the psychology behind that it's a good assumption that needs to be verified there's so much studies right now this is the golden age of sociology to be honest between COVID-19 and this virtual world called the metaverse this is the golden age of sociology we're going to start learning a lot about how humans 
uh, behave. Um, but yeah. Amazing. Hostin, it's been so great to talk to you. I, I want to just leave you with, is there anything kind of left unsaid that you feel like the audience might want to hear as it pertains to this topic? Well, listen, at the end of the day, to all the ed tech companies out there, your job goes way beyond creating a tech company, having, you know, a seed funding, Series A, Series B, and then an exit. It goes to really giving access to as many people as possible to great education. And I'm not talking about, you know, like recordings of, of videos from teachers they've never met. I'm talking about human interactions, spontaneous human interactions. So I know that the next two years are going to be quite difficult financially. There's not a lot of VC funding out there. They're going to, they're going to try to, to, to save uh, the companies they invested in in 2021 and 2020. But hopefully it will get, will get by. And if you can survive this economic crisis, well, we'll see you at the end of the tunnel because chances are your company is going to be well prepared for what's coming in the next five years. So the name of the game is Cash is King. Be careful with your spending. And I will see you in a year and a half. Hmm, great advice. If people want to get a hold of you, either just to learn a bit, a bit about your immersive worlds that you guys are designing or maybe just to hear your story, what's the best way for people to learn more about what you're doing? LinkedIn is a wonderful, wonderful invention, to be honest. LinkedIn, Hosni Zawali. I'll put it in the show notes. Hosni, thanks so much for sharing your story, giving us some of your philosophy behind scaling up, and more importantly, thanks for thinking of, as I said before, the marginalized groups, and you know, including uh, you know, talk about when we're designing products, how accessibility or people with accessibility issues and homelessness, these people need to be remembered. So I really appreciate that message, and I appreciate you. Safe travels, my friend, to Africa and keep doing the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Craig. It was an absolute pleasure talking to your audience. And um, yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll talk in a year and a half, two years. And and yeah, hopefully I was wrong. Hopefully, you know, the, <laughs> the economy is not going <laughs> to crash and everybody's going to be fine. Mm-hmm.